0: It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Vikings, your daily Minnesota Vikings podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.
1: What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Locked On Vikings. I'm your host, your pal, and the kid you copied off in math class. My name is Luke Braun. You can find me on Twitter at NFL. You can find the show on Twitter At Locked on Vikings, you can find this show anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, like Google Podcasts, Himalaya, Spotify, whatever it is. And if you don't like any of those services, you can always ask your smart device to play podcast Locked on Vikings. And before we get started today, I do want to tell you a quick little uh, news item, something to get hyped about. Crossover Wednesday is going to be back next week. Now, if you are not somebody who has been listening to Locked On Vikings uh, during the season, so uh, or you are unfamiliar with the network, there are Locked On podcasts for every NFL team. Locked On Falcons, Locked On Packers, etc. And every Wednesday show during the season, we will be talking to the Locked On host for the opposing team. So the Wednesday before week one, we'll be talking to Aaron Freeman. He's the host of Locked On Falcons. Get a, a look at the Falcons from his perspective. And of course, we'll do some of our own. Uh, previewing stuff on the Thursday show, like we have been during the preseason. Now, today usually would be my uh, like deep dive into the previous game and all that. It's been a little bit since the Cardinals game; that's kind of a little bit of old news. But there are some things that do want to discuss there. I also just want to give you a quick uh, housekeeping note. This will be a normal week, going to do a regular Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But as the Vikings play a football game on Thursday night uh, uh, at. Four o'clock my time. I'm on the West Coast. Uh, I will be watching that game and then immediately recording a podcast and posting my recap and my my roster prediction episode. Uh kind of as, like, one whole thing on Thursday night, and you'll probably be able to listen to it Thursday morning. So when there isn't a show in your inbox on Thursday morning at the normal time, don't freak out. It's because I'm waiting for the Vikings to actually play a game. Otherwise, it's silly. I have to wait until, like, roster cuts have already happened. I can't do my last round of predictions, which I'm going to do. Uh, And if you want something a little bit more timely, you can always uh, find that on Twitter at NFL. So with that out of the way, let's talk about the biggest news of yesterday. Mike Hughes came off the pup, which surprised me. I did not think that, uh, that he was... that. That far uh, along in his rehab, but this is amazing and awesome news. And the timing of it is particularly encouraging because of the way the physically unable to perform list works. So if you are unfamiliar, the physically unable to perform list during the preseason is essentially just like a reserve. It's it's essentially uh, a pseudo injury report. It's like the fake IR uh, because you can come off of it at any time and you still count toward the roster. So you're not like truly a reserve player. But once the season starts, the team has to make a decision. I, they either have to take him off of the physically unable to perform list and he eats up a roster spot, regardless of how injured he is, or you keep him on the pup and he is ineligible to play for the first six weeks. Uh, so if you remember, we were kind of dealing with the same thing with Pat Elfline last year. We, he was still dealing with a lingering injury from the previous season and we weren't sure if he was going to be ready to play week one. but. The Vikings knew that he would be more than ready to play by week six, and they didn't want to lose what ended up being three weeks of Pat Elfline. So they took him off the pup, like, the day before roster cuts, and, and then rostered him, and then he sat out for three weeks, and then he came in for the week four contest against the Rams. And they probably knew that they were going to do that, but you might as well keep them on the pup, because if there's a setback or something happens, then, you you know, the pup is still an option. Now that Mike Hughes is off it, he can't go back on it unless, like, you, you have to start talking about, like, IR now if you want to find a way to stash him away without taking a roster spot if it turns out that his injury is worse than you thought or if there's a setback or something like that. And there's no real reason to do that. I mean it's not like he's gonna play in the Bills game, uh, that's gonna be more for the depth players in the roster bubble guys, so there's really no reason to take him off of the pup until the very very last second if you thought that there was gonna be some like risk of him not being ready to go by or close to week one. So this is an awesome sign because th- them doing this at this particular juncture means they want him practicing and they want to start preparing him him for a possible week one debut. Now, I, I don't think that that's a guarantee. He might miss week one, maybe even week two or something. But now we're talking like barring a setback. Worst case scenario is he misses a couple of games instead of thinking that we were going to miss him for like six. And this also changes some of the, the roster stuff. And like, so what does this mean for the, the roster? Well, a lot of the corner depth issues that the Vikings were dealing with, especially with Holton Hill's increasingly growing list of suspend, suspended games, Uh, this really helps alleviate some of that pressure. You have a group now that looks a lot better with Mike Hughes in it. I mean, Xavier Rhodes, Trey Waynes, Mackenzie Alexander, and Mike Hughes, there's your starting four. And Mike Hughes can back up every corner position on the roster. He can play slot and outside. So whichever guy there gets hurt, Mike Hughes can basically fill that in and you don't have to worry as much about it. Now, it's still a question whether or not they'll roster five or six corners. Of course, they've rostered six for the last, like, however many years Marcus Sherrills has been a thing because he's kind of like created his own sixth roster spot for being the punt returner and stuff. That might not be the case this year. I have kind of penciled it in as the case because I think that in this era of growing, you know, three wide receiver, four wide receiver, empty spread offense stuff, I think you need more corners. And plus they tend to be pretty good on special teams. I've been penciling in six corners and who that guy ends up being is now like a way more interesting, right? You have Ben Wickery, Duke Thomas, and Chris Boyd. I don't think any of them have looked particularly good. I guess Ben Wickery's been the least bad of the three. Chris Boyd was very bad against the Cardinals. Uh, so those guys might be competing over like one roster spot, maybe two, and now you have that that group kind of starting to solidify. And then once Holton Hill comes back, you have a group of five guys, maybe six if you want to hang on to Ben Wickery, that you can feel really, really good about. Speaking of feeling really, really good, let's do a Blue Chew ad, shall we? Fellas, are you looking to increase your performance and your confidence in the bedroom? Then head on over to BlueChew.com. That's blue like the color blue. Blue Chew is the first chewable tablet of its kind. It has all the same like active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know exactly what you're getting, but since it's a chewable, it kicks in twice as fast, so when the moment's right, you don't have to sit around and wait for a pill to kick in. It's made right here in the United States, and it ships directly to your door, so you can skip the pharmacy, save money, and there's no awkwardness. It's shipped in a very nice, discreet box. You can take them anytime, day, night, even on a full stomach. And here's the thing, this isn't just for men of a certain age who maybe can't perform the way that they used to in their glory days. This is for anybody who's just looking to up their performance in the bedroom. And right now, we have a special offer going on. This is my gift to you. When you go to bluechew.com, enter the promo code locked on, and you can try it for free, free of charge. Promo code locked on. So head on over to bluechew.com, B L U E C H E W.com. Enter the promo code locked on, try this out for free, and do yourself and your partner a favor. And of course, we thank them for sponsoring the podcast.
0: anxiety stress need something to calm yourself down the calm app is available for you 40 percent off to our listeners at calm.com locked on nba stuck at home want fitness echelon fit has been a sponsor of ours and you can go to echelonfit.com slash l o nba and if you're looking to add some new knowledge and get a little smarter in your free time
1: Okay, moving on. So let's get into some of the uh, re-watch stuff from the Cardinals game. I know the Cardinals game was, like, all the way back on Saturday, but there are a couple things that I want to address from my recap that came up yesterday uh, that I want to either correct or, like, double down on, depending. Uh, And the first thing is a correction. I want to talk about uh, Drew Samia, because in yesterday's show, I disparaged disparaged his game pretty heavily, and I said that he had a bad game, and I am here to tell you to throw that entire bit of analysis out the window and forget that I said it entirely, delete it from your brain because I was extremely wrong like I was as wrong as wrong gets so basically, when I was watching the game, I, I didn't think that Drew Samia had a good game. I saw what I thought was his man getting the tackle in run plays all the time. I saw a bunch of replays where it looked like he got beat, and so I, I wasn't watching him closely every single time. Obviously, it was a live watch, so I'm looking at other things on the play at, at any given time. I'm looking at other linemen, looking at Oli Udo, or looking at the running back, or whatever. Uh, so there were a whole bunch of, like, unbelievably good plays that I just didn't see him make, and and that's what the rewatch is for, is to kind of, like, catch that stuff. And there were also a bunch bunch. of times where i remember being like oh i totally thought that that play that failed was drew samia's fault but in reality the center was supposed to get that guy and i just wasn't watching closely enough to really pick that out and again this is what the rewatch is for uh, and, and I would say that this, if this is means that, you know, you don't trust my live game takes, that's actually probably better because live takes are live. They're being kind of spouted off right in the moment. And to really get to the truth, you do have to go back and look. And And that's why I do that exercise. That's why that's, this is what the Tuesday show is going to be for every single week to make sure that that kind of stuff doesn't go uncorrected. And like I've been saying from the first day I took over this podcast, never take it from me. Go look for yourself. I'll always show my work. There is a Twitter thread uh, down below where I post the, the film that I'm, I'm citing here uh, for all to see. So, so go check it out and, and come to your own conclusions. And please go do follow along with that, because now I kind of want to talk about a couple of the things that Drew Samia actually did very well. And one thing that I noticed from him is, uh, for one, whenever he was involved in a combo block, a lot of times his job happened to be to finish. Uh, so what a combo block is, is, you know, one lineman is tasked with blocking, say, a defensive tackle. And the guy next to him is tasked with blocking a linebacker, but on the way to the linebacker, he'll kind of throw out a hand and, and you know, shove the defensive tackle to help out the guy who's going to be one-on-one with someone's, you know, Aaron Donald, uh, help that guy out with a shove and then go get to your your linebacker. There was one in particular, I think it was uh, one of the first plays in, in that thread, I think it's the second play in that thread where it was Drew Samia had the defensive tackle and Brett Jones had the linebacker. Now, the way the play went, uh, Danny Isadora gave up uh, penetration to his man and it ruined all the angles so the linebacker didn't end up in the gap that he was supposed to, and then Brett Jones couldn't get to him. But that has nothing to do with Drew Samia's job, which is to just finish off the defensive tackle and he falls o- over on top of him. He gets uh, a great leverage on him. He gets uh, the defensive tackle like by the side, and when you get the guy by the side, you've the leverage battle, because you'll never be able to push harder from the side than from the front. Uh, So you just just get a better, like, blocking angle on it, and then just, like, the finish and the aggression, and he just looked, like, mean out there. There was another one where it was a draw play. I think it was, like, third and 17 or something, so it's not like the play, like, actually mattered, but it did display a good technique. And there is something called, like, closing the curtain in zone blocking, and usually it's for when you are assigned a reach block and you can't get to the guy, Uh, you're supposed to close the curtain. Essentially, it works, though, for, like, any situation like this one where the angle prevents you from getting in front of your man. And instead of holding him, which can be a 10-yard penalty, you're supposed to, and, like, think about this, like, make this motion with your arm if you're in a place where it's not embarrassing to do so. Like, if, if you imagine grabbing somebody by the lapel, and then making the same motion that your arm makes when you, like, close a shower curtain. Like, and you kind of just toss him across like that. Or another way to put it is you grab him by his outside shoulder pad and then toss him inside. And don't worry, this isn't holding because it's, it's like, more of a push motion than, like, a drag and, like, impeding motion. But essentially you're supposed to take him by the shoulder and throw him to the ground, and that's kind of your desperation move. And the very first play in that thread is him doing a, an unbelievable job of that. Because like, in a draw play, you're supposed to feign pass protection, right? Because it's supposed to be a fake pass play that turns into a run. Uh, so you fake pass protection, and your defensive tackle comes upfield just like he's supposed to, but then he realizes that it's a draw, and he starts running away from you. Now, the angle is such that you can't get in front of him and continue to block him, so he closes the curtain and gets the guy on the ground. It's actually, like, this amazing feat of athleticism. And if nothing else, it's, like, not really that big of a technique moment because it's, like, it's on a draw play. This this idea is never going to come up in, like, that many important situations uh, except for, like, zone blocks, like, in running, like, zone blocks that you didn't get the reach on but never, like, this specific angle. But if nothing else, it displays this, like, amazing upper body strength that we knew Drew Samia had. I mean, that's why he got drafted in the fourth round. And, and even if you aren't satisfied with his preseason so far, which I think is totally fair despite, you know, having a very good game against Arizona, he at least looks rosterable based on athleticism alone. And I think that that play really defines that. And there were a couple other plays where he, you know, ended up putting men into the dirt I also really, really liked the way that he climbed to the second level, which is something that I thought he struggled with in the first two preseason games. So seeing progression there is really, really nice. Now I would love to see consistency. I would love to see him continue to excel there against the Bills, even though I think that this game was good enough on its own. I don't think he had to do a whole lot to prove that he could make the roster as a fourth-round pick and a fourth-round pick that they traded up for. I think they were already going to be kind of biased towards keeping him, whether or not that's the right decision. Uh, So, you know, there isn't, like, a ton that he had to do. So I do think this game was enough. But even if it isn't enough... Uh, hopefully he can continue this kind of play against the Bills, but, you know, when he's the other side of the combo block, where he's supposed to, you know, get an arm into the defensive tackle, then climb up to a linebacker, he had a couple plays that were just absolutely unbelievable, and this is something that I thought that Pat Elfline, who we'll talk about next, uh, didn't do the best job with. I mean, he was, like, fine, but he wasn't, like, he didn't excel, but I thought he did a really good job of getting a solid engagement in the second level, and this is a really hard thing for his own blocking offensive linemen, because they are big, big boys, and they have to move with, like, a... lot of precision, especially when you're getting into the second level and you're trying to basically get squared up with a linebacker who is almost always going to be more agile than you. If you can get a square engagement, you're almost always going to be stronger than the linebacker, uh, but you have to get that square engagement. And that's kind of the hard part. And I thought Drew Samia did a really, really good job with his footwork and, you know, not taking extra steps and being very precise and also keeping his base in a way that he could you know, keep up with whatever movements the linebacker would make to try to get around him. Now, there's still plenty of technique stuff. I think that his footwork on certain zone blocks is a little suspect, and, and I think that his positioning in terms of engagements is a little suspect. But there was one technique thing that I noticed that is really encouraging, even though he's not that good at it yet, was uh, this like kind of high-low torque movement. Uh, you, you will see it very often. You'll see linebackers kind of put one hand high and one hand low. Usually the outside hand is high and the inside hand is low and then you kind of just try to like rotate their body and that is like a leverage thing. It's a way of pushing on them in in a way that's difficult for them to like resist you and, and you can usually throw off either their balance or throw off their pass rush in some way. Uh, you you see it a lot on pass protection reps and it's a very good technique and it's it's a polished thing and I saw him try that he's he looks very slow at it he looks uh, and I, I would have to look very deep into his Oklahoma tape to see if it's something that he did at Oklahoma or not so I, I actually don't know the answer to that or how much experience he has but he does look like it's like it's slow and like it's something that he's thinking about which is rookie stuff right he's raw he's a rookie he's thinking but I, but it, I I would love to learn that Rick Dennison is trying to instill new techniques into him and and try to get him to learn things because when all that stuff clicks, he could really be a a formidable interior offensive lineman in the future uh, just because of his athleticism. And that's what they're trying to get out of him, right? And that's why you draft him. Now, I don't think he's like ready to start, even though Josh Klein had a rough day against the Cardinals. I don't think he's ready to start yet. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he's he's quite there, but, but seeing steps of progress is really encouraging, and I absolutely think he's ready to make the team. Now before I continue and talk about some other stuff on the offensive line real quick, let's talk about DoorDash. Have you had a long day at work? Are you still stuck at the office? Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code LOCKEDON. Okay, moving on. Let's talk about Xavier Rhodes real quick because a lot has been made about him having like a really bad day, and it's basically off of two catches that Jameer Bird got on Xavier Rhodes. And and make no mistake, Bird got Rhodes good, and it's a guy that not a lot of people have heard of. So you get a little bit worried about that, and you're like, oh my goodness, their nobodies are beating him. Is he even going to make their team? And he's and they're beating Xavier Rhodes. I'm so worried. I'm here to talk you off the ledge. For one, it's two reps, even if it were like the worst two reps ever. It's just two reps and they're reps that he's going to go learn from. And for two, I don't think that those are physical reps. I think that they were... Or, or a physical loss. I, I don't think that he got, like, outsped. I mean, maybe Jameer Bird, or I'm sorry, Demir Bird. I've been saying Jameer. Demir Bird ran a 4 8 on grass at his pro day. I mean, he is a burner, like Jeff Bat at speed. So, you know, being worried about that speed as Xavier Rhodes, who's plenty fast for a corner but not 4 8 fast, is understandable. So on the first rep, and you'll remember this as, I think it was a third down, it was a big, long catch. He was, like, wide open, and and Xavier Rhodes was trailing him. Uh, Luckily, both of these catches were uh, displayed on a Brian Baldinger breakdown. He will post videos to his Twitter all the time where he breaks down certain plays, and he gets access to the All-22 because he's NFL media in the preseason, which us common folk do not get preseason All-22, so we could actually see the whole route from start to finish from the All-22 angle, and that's really important. And what it looks like to me, and some of this is speculative, but what it looks like to me is uh, that I don't think Xavier Rhodes was expecting such a harsh outside release on that first one. Uh, It was just a go route, and uh, it was, you know, he beat Xavier Rhodes by like five yards. Uh, And he was looking to jam Demir Bird at the line to prevent him from getting that speed, but Demir Bird released outside way harder than I think Rhodes was anticipating, which is a mental mistake. He should have been ready for that, and he should have lined up further outside because the, the coverage on that play was cover two. And as a cover two cornerback, your whole idea is to basically make it so that they can't get the sideline. They can't get room between you and the sideline, or at least enough room for the quarterback to throw the ball. You're supposed to make it really, really tight and essentially incentivize them to break their routes off inside where you have a bunch of safety and linebacker help. Uh, So Xavier Rhodes gave up the sideline and that was his big mistake because I, I, maybe he just underestimated it or he just thought, Uh, that, that he would be able to jam Bird off the line, but he just released outside too hard. And Xavier Rhodes actually takes a couple steps forward and Demir Bird is is you know charging up the field with his 428 speed, and then it's curtains for Xavier Rhodes. So to me, I think that was a technique mistake and a mental mistake, uh, and definitely one that he needs to go back and examine and figure out what happened and why why he made that mistake. But it's not a physical one, a because the guy is just faster than him; he's faster than most people, and that's not a like a reason to be worried. But b because he let himself get into a situation where that speed could shine. And then on the second play, this was that back shoulder uh, c- curl route that, you know, I think it was like an 11, 12-yard curl route. Kyle, Kyler Murray threw strikes on both of these, by the way. He deserves a lot of credit. Xavier Rhodes turned his hips upfield way too fast, probably because he was afraid of that 4-2-8 speed, and Demir Bird then pulled a curl off. This is the kind of thing that if Jeff, Badet were a, uh, Jeff Bidette were a better route runner or were a more polished wide receiver, he could absolutely get, like, everybody on this. And he has, to his credit, done this in training camp a decent amount, decent enough amount for me to think he's actually on the roster bubble. So a couple of good routes from him, and he beat a good cornerback a couple of times. I think credit to Kyler Murray and Demir Bird. But I, I think that Xavier Rhodes, you know, played strategically for the speed of the guy that he was going against, and I think he was just a, a little bit too afraid of it after getting burned by it that first time, and and then it cost him another completion. But that's something you can go back and fix in the film room. I'm not worried about him one iota. Uh, but somebody that everybody is worried about is Pat Elfline. So let's wrap up the show by talking about him. So a lot of people have been very, very concerned about Pat Elfline and, and the discussion leading up to this, and I'm guilty of this too, was like, hey, if Elfline has another really bad game, do we have to start like considering Brett Jones as the starting left guard? And I, I do think that there was some validity to that, but his game against Arizona I think has quashed all of those things. It's very similar to Rashad Hill having a horrible game against the Saints, and now he's turned in a couple of pretty good ones against the Seahawks and Cardinals, and you kind of quashed any of the worry that you had of like, oh my goodness, is he broken? Now, during the live watch, I didn't watch Pat Elfline, like, barely at all, so I was kind of like, I don't know, I didn't notice him, that's probably good, right? And that was about the only analysis I could offer, but I actually did make a point to, like, watch all of his plays, and I gotta tell you, he had a pretty good day. He was not without mistakes, but for offensive linemen, we have to decide, like, how many mistakes is too many, and how many is actually a pretty good game. You know, a lineman that goes over a whole quarter or a whole half, and only makes two mistakes, and neither of them are huge ones, that's a good day for an offensive lineman. So we have to set that standard and then see if Elfline's day measures up. And and my standard is, you know, I I don't want to see you make any massive mistakes. Um, and I only want to see you make like a handful of, of little ones. Nobody's ever going to be perfect. So, uh, you know, three, four little mistakes I think is pushing it. And I don't think that Pat Elfline pushed it. There were a couple of times when he struggled to get square engagements in the second level, like I was just praising Drew Samia for. Uh, that's a very difficult thing to do. And he did struggle with it a, a little bit, but not so much where it like ruined the play all on its own. It may have affected the play or the angle. Sometimes his guy would end up getting in on the cleanup tackle, which usually means he didn't do a good enough job. Um, but it wasn't like he would completely whiff and the guy would go totally blow up a play that would have otherwise gotten more yards. And there were a couple of times where he, oh, I, I don't want to say over-pursued because that's how we describe defenders, but he like overran his gap essentially on zone blocks. That's just like a spacing issue that is part of getting used to, you know, moving back to guard, which he hasn't done in three years. Uh, something that we could kind of expect, but it is a mistake that did lead to a couple of, of blown plays. But PFF's grade on uh, Pat Elfline was fairly positive and I do agree with that. I think that he and Bradbury, by and large, did a very good job combo blocking, even though Bradbury had a rougher day. I think he had a couple of penalties and some miscues and stuff. Um, you know, a lot of rookie stuff, things that are, is you know, I mean, that's going to affect plays this season. That's what you get when you have a rookie center. Uh, but it's, you know, it's part of, it's the cost you have to pay to go get a good center down the road. And Bradbury's a pretty smart guy, so it's not as exaggerated as other rookie centers would potentially be. I think I remember Ryan Kelly having a big problem with all that stuff, and now he's like very good on that Colts offensive line. I think something that I noticed with Pat Elfline is that he does give up a fair amount of space and that is pretty rough on the interior. Uh, Similar issues to what Brian O'Neill has. I mean, for both of them, it's a power thing, but it's a little bit worse on the interior than on the edge because, uh, you know, collapsing on the edge, it's a little easier to to dodge out of that, but when you collapse on the interior, it, it basically just makes it easier for Ed Rushers to get home because you can't step up into the pocket. But he was still staying in front of his band, so you can still kind of call it a win. You just call it like a win with an asterisk because he gave up two steps of grass. Uh, and it's, you know, it's something that you always have to like take into account. But what I really liked is that he did eventually find a way to anchor, and that's not something that he was doing against Seattle. He would just kind of, you know, he would lose his balance and he would get put on his butt. Uh, this time he would anchor and he would, you know, win the hand fight and he would get the leverage and he would eventually get up under the guy and prevent him from affecting the play. And there were also moments where he actually really flashed and he put somebody into the dirt. Uh, there were a couple of blocking plays where he would, you know, take his defensive tackle five yards back and and make a whole bunch of space. He had an unbelievable block on the big long cook touchdown. I, I thought he did a great job there. He was a backside, so it wasn't like particularly material to the play. But when we're evaluating players in the preseason, that doesn't really matter because the end result... Of the play never matters. Uh, you know, we're just kind of looking at like how bad did he beat his guy? And on that particular play, he beat his guy like really bad. And that does help, you know, when when you're cutting off a bend read for your zone running back, uh, you know, it helps to not have somebody penetrating and, and, you know, it helps to give him as much space as you can to make that read. So, uh, this thread and the Brian Bolgener thing, that's all going to be in the show notes. So you can, you know, talk about that. I'll probably add more to the Pat Elfline thread over the next couple of days. I didn't get to everything to posting all of the clips that I wanted to post. So I'll probably kind of pick at it over time as we're like killing time until the Buffalo game here. But ultimately there was a, a lot to like there. There were a couple of mistakes and things that I think will materially affect the offense moving forward into the regular season. And I think we just kind of have to make peace with a couple of issues and, you know, his good game doesn't put to rest all of the concerns that I have about him. Uh, So before I sign off and what I want to leave you with is like my definitive Pat Elfline take. For the preseason because he's not going to play against the bills and he's going to be our starting left guard and i i just know that because you know elfline had that bad game against seattle and i think some people have latched on to him as like their public enemy number one this is kind of a a job that has uh, you know, bounced around over time. It was from back in the day when it was Matt Khalil or even Christian Ponder way back and it was Tom Compton last year, and now it's Pat Elfline. The guy that, you know, basically anytime they make any mistake, they are going to get way more flack for it than anybody else who makes a mistake. And that's just the way of fandom. Somebody's always just gonna kind of be that that guy, that, you know, public enemy, and it's Pat Elfline this year. So here's the deal. And anytime I get Uh, a Pat Elfline question about like how bad can this guy be how did we come to this and get here and all that Uh, I just kind of want to point them to this Uh, here's the thing Pat Elfline is not a good starter but he is a starter that's I think the, the log line to the thesis here is Pat Elfline is a starter but not a good one that doesn't mean he's a backup I think that makes him, you know, better than, like, Tom Compton was. Tom Compton wasn't quite a starter. He was a good backup, but not a good starter. I think he's about in the same range as, like, Nick Easton is, who's playing for the Saints now, and I think he's actually been struggling, but I can't uh, say that for sure. I really only know what I saw of him in that Vikings game. And yes, he is going to make mistakes that materially affect the outcomes of games. They will not be insurmountable mistakes, but they also will not be, you know, negligible ones. I don't think that Rick Spielman made a mistake anointing him and penciling him in as the starter... Uh, I I don't think that Rick Spielman, like, didn't get enough good depth. I think that if Pat Elfline were worse than Brett Jones, and we had to start Brett Jones, that isn't a scenario that is the apocalypse of doom. Not to mention Drew Samia, who appears to be coming along a lot more nicely than I uh, uh, really thought on Saturday. And guys like Dakota Dozier, who actually do have, like, starting experience, and Dozier's been having a reasonable preseason as well. So I don't think that Rick Spielman uh, erred in building an interior offensive line under the assumption that Pat Elfline would be starting on that interior offensive line. And I know that that's very difficult to parse, where I said he's not a good starter, but it's okay that he was the starter, and that's because he's under a rookie contract, and you shouldn't spend too much on your left guard anyways. They spent on the other guard position, and they spent a first-round draft pick elsewhere on the line. They had a lot of other things that they had to do on that interior line, and adding a whole other guy to have to go get would create a burden that would have prevented you from, say, extending Adam Thielen or Kyle Rudolph or re-signing Anthony Barr, doing something that's probably more important than what's going on at your left guard situation. The reality of the situation is when there is a salary cap, assuming that even though it's a malleable one and one that you can kind of do a lot of things to get around, eventually you do reach a limit and you have to allocate your resources smartly. And you can live with a left guard who is a below-average starter. Not a disaster. This isn't TJ Clemmings. This isn't even going to be Tom Compton. This will be better than that. And if it isn't, you have a backup that can come in and probably do just about as well as Tom Compton. If putting up with Pat Elfline at left guard means I get to keep Anthony Barr and Adam Thielen long-term, then I'm going to take that deal 100 times out of 100. And that's where I'm going to wrap up today's Locked on Vikings. As always, you can find me on Twitter... At Luke Braun NFL. You can find the show on Twitter at Locked On Vikings. You can find this show anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, and you can find this show by asking your smart device to play podcast Locked On Vikings. I will see you all tomorrow. I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. I'll figure it out. Uh, but I will see you for tomorrow's show. And as always, Skull.
0: Hey, Locked On Minnesota listeners, this is Tony Abbott here to tell you about the brand new Locked on Wild podcast, where my co-host Joe Bully and I break down the Minnesota Wild every single day. How can you listen? Just search for Locked on Wild in your favorite podcast app and subscribe to bring Locked on Wild to your device every day.